Amen. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 5. We're teaching on the life of David and um, we're going through and seeing a couple of things about his life. First of all, we're seeing the characteristics of his life that, uh, that we can, can and should emulate. But when we talk about David and, and particularly there, there are three main characters in the, in the life of David or in the, the history of Israel around the time of David. One is Saul. He was the first that was anointed king. And the second is David, and the third is Solomon. It kind of helps me to know who everybody represents. Because if you, can, if you can understand the types that each one of these individuals represent, then it makes a little bit more sense, or it can make more sense, about what they did and how they did it and how that applies to us. Saul represents Adam, fallen man, and the Jews. Because he was the first that was chosen by God to be king. He had the anointing or the power of God upon him to be king, but he disobeyed and he fell. Just like Adam did in the Garden of Eden that resulted in fallen mankind. Just like the Jews did when they rebelled against God, both Old Testament and in the time of Jesus. Saul then became the enemy of the chosen one, God's chosen one, God's anointed one, which is David. And for about, we don't know exactly, but somewhere in the neighborhood of 8 to 10 years... For eight to ten years, he fought against David, and there was a civil war in Israel uh, in his attempt to destroy David and keep him from ever coming to the throne. He knew that he was anointed; that David was anointed to be king. Saul knew that. He knew that God had chosen him. He knew that God, he that David was God's man. But he was doing everything he could to preserve his own situation. He became the enemy of David, even though David was good for Israel and even good for Saul. Now, David never turned away from Saul. He never became the enemy of Saul, although Saul was his enemy. The Bible says in Ephesians 1 that, that uh, while we were yet enemies of God, he reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. That's what David's a type of. That's what he's a picture of. And David finally becomes king after many years of persecution and after much suffering. David becomes king. Now, David did several things, four main things in his life once he became king that uh, that are uh, that illustrate to us um, the the type that he fulfills as as Jesus. Obviously, every everything in David's life doesn't represent Jesus because there's no sin in Jesus' life. But the overall, the type of Jesus uh, is fulfilled in David by four things. First, the first thing that he did was he took Zion. He had to defeat the Jebusites, and they were a people that nobody had been able to defeat from the time of Joshua on. But he defeated them. Had a plan to do it. A special way, a different way of doing it than anybody else had done before. And so he defeated the Jebusites and he took Zion. Now, when he took Zion, Zion is uh, Mount Zion is also Mount Moriah. It's the place where David offered his son Isaac as a, as a sacrifice. It's known as the Temple Mount in Jerusalem today. The Temple Mount has two main peaks. One is called Mount Moriah or Mount Zion, whichever name you want to use, one and the same. The other is unnamed, but that, that second peak is where David made his house. He made his, his own house. In, in one sense, he made it at the right hand of the temple of God on the same mountain, just right next to it. Now, David, after recapturing Zion, making Zion the headquarters and preparing a place for the temple to be, the next thing he does is he defeats his enemies. The Bible says that Jesus' kingdom was created by spoiling principalities and powers and made an open show of them. Every enemy that Jesus had has been defeated. Every enemy of mankind has been defeated. That was part of David's work. Now, Jesus did it before he was exalted to the right hand of the Father. David did it after he was exalted to be king. 
The third thing that David did was he brought the ark back to Jerusalem. In other words, that signifies that he made a place for mankind to worship in a way that had never been done before. Now, he wanted to build the temple. The fourth thing is he wanted to build the temple, but God wouldn't let him do it. God wouldn't let him do it because he was a man of war. These are the words that God used. I'm not going to let you do it. You can't build it because you're a man of war, but I'll let your son Solomon do it. Well, Solomon represents the church. Now, the Bible says that, uh, that Jesus, Jesus said of himself, he said, I will build the church. But how does Jesus build the church? Does he do it separate from us? No, he does it through us. And what did Solomon build the temple with? Everything that David provided. David provided the means, and Solomon built the temple. Solomon, who represents the body of Christ, presided over the greatest period of prosperity and peace in the history of Israel. There was greater prosperity in Israel than in any other time. The Bible talks about this, the silver was so uh, abundant that they didn't even count it. They just piled it up out back of the temple. That's pretty rich. Now, why was Solomon so rich? A lot of times people are trying to, to gain the same prosperity or the same monetary um, possessions as Solomon. But you've got to realize Solomon represents the body of Christ. It represents the richness of the body of Christ because of what David did. David, uh, Solomon didn't fight one battle. Didn't have to. Because David had made the way to conquer the enemies of Israel. So if you realize that Saul, who Saul, David, and Solomon represented helps us to see a little bit better i think so you may disagree but i think it helps us to see a little bit better about who what everybody is doing and why now last week we saw that uh, the first thing that david did after he was crowned king he's reunited the uh, the tribes of israel and he is uh, the civil war is over the eight to ten year civil war is over now and, and david is the rightful king as god intended now, the first thing that he does is he takes the stronghold, which is Mount Zion. We talked about that a little bit already. He takes it, and as soon as the Bible tells us that he finishes taking Mount Zion, it speaks, of, it speaks to us about David taking wives unto himself. That's a type of Christ in the church. And then in verse 17, it tells us the first thing that David does in conquering his enemies. Let's start reading in verse 17. It said, but when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines came up to seek David, and David heard of it and went down to the hold. The word hold is the word fortress. Many other translations say fortress or stronghold or something to that effect. Here's what this means. When David's enemies, the Philistines, and they've been his en the, en the enemies of Israel for a long time. You remember there were two occasions that the Bible tells us about where David went to the Philistines for, for safety, and he obtained it. The Philistines were, were willing, at least marginally willing to accept him into their land as long as they thought that he was the enemy of Saul but he never was he was just trying to find a place of refuge not a place that God ever sent him to both times he's operating on his own idea rather than seeking out the plan of God but the Philistines now when they hear that David has been anointed king over all of Israel that means they know that the civil war is ended that means that their enemy, mortal enemy, the Israelites, are now stronger or at least have the potential to be stronger and gain strength more so than they ever have, or at least in the last 10 years during the civil war and Saul's persecution of David. So it stirs them up. Now, the fact that it tells us that it happened immediately, or is the first thing that mentions after David takes the, the, uh, the stronghold, 
It may indicate that they acted quickly before David has a chance to fortify the place on his own, before he has a chance to expand on it. They may be thinking, well, if he took Zion, then he must have broken down the walls some way or another or the heights of the, of the mountain, and maybe we can get in there too. So they come. Now, different translations speak of this in different ways where it says they came to seek David. Some translations say they came to spy out their defenses. Some translations say they sought to kill him. Either way, David goes into the stronghold. He goes into the fortification. He doesn't take the bait. This, this is either a, spy, a scouting party or individual assassins that are sent into the city, the new city of Jerusalem, before they have a chance to really build or fortify or anything else to take David out or to find out how to defeat the city. Uh, let's see, where are we at? Verse 18. Then it says, the Philistines also came and spread themselves in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord. Now, I want you to see this. David's king. He's got the power to make his own decisions. But here's one example that you need to see that's fulfilled not only in Jesus in his earthly ministry, but should be fulfilled in us. Remember, Jesus said, I didn't come to seek my own will or to do my own will. Everything that I do is the will of the Father. He said even about his works and his words. He says, the works that I do, I do not of myself, but it's the Father in me that doeth the works. He said, the words that I speak unto you, I only say what I hear my Father say. Now, folks, Jesus was the, was the anointed one. Jesus had a will of his own. Jesus had the wisdom of God. He was wiser than Solomon, the Bible says. He said of himself. He was the wisest man that had ever lived on the earth. In most cases, he knows what to do without even asking God. But every situation that we have in, uh, a record of in the, in the Gospels, Jesus always checks with the Father and says, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to handle this? At least that's what he claimed. He said that he only did the will of the Father, meaning everything that he did, he made sure was the Father's will. Now, some things he didn't have to ask God about, I'm sure. I mean, when somebody came to, uh, to him to receive healing, he didn't have to pray and find out, is it God's will to heal this one? Because he knew it was God's will to heal everyone. But he was so in tune and committed to the will of God that he was unwilling to do anything in his life, to take any action in his life, that was contrary to the will of God. Now put yourself in his position. There's a lot of people he would have been justified in calling fire down on. There's a lot of people he would have been justified in executing judgment upon. Elijah and, uh, uh, um, it's not Elijah, it was Elisha, I believe it was, that called the bears out of the woods to kill those 40 kids, young men. Well, God didn't strike Elisha down for that. That was not something that was contrary to the will and the plan and the purpose of God. Why didn't Jesus ever do that? John even suggested that he do that one time. He went to a city and the city rejected him. So Jesus turned away and John said, are you going to call fire down from heaven? Like the prophets did, like Elijah did. And Jesus said, you don't know what spirit you're of. Now notice he didn't say, I can't. He said, you don't know what spirit you're of. See, folks, there are a lot of things in life that we have a right to do that might not be the love of God to do. Jesus was more concerned in being the right spirit of his father, not just what he had the ability to do. You remember when the devil tempted him in, Mark chapter, in uh, Matthew chapter 4? 
He was hungry after 40 days of fasting. The devil came to him. He said, if you're the son of God, command these stones to be made bread. Did you notice Jesus said, no, I can't do that. It's not what he said, is it? No, instead, he put the, the, the will and the character of God first. And he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. In other words, he had the ability. Otherwise, it's not a bona fide temptation. And if Jesus is not really being tempted of the devil, see, some people take these temptations, the three temptations of the enemy. They'll say, well, Jesus knew that he was lying. Jesus knew the devil couldn't give him the power that he offered him. These weren't, this wasn't the real deal. Well, then why did Jesus take part in a lie when he called it a temptation? See, folks, you're only tempted by the things you can do, not the things you can't do. I doubt very seriously if any of you were tempted to put $10 million in the offering plate tonight. You may have a desire to do that, but if you don't have the ability, there's no temptation whatsoever. Right? So what does David do? David follows the example that we see later on in Jesus' life. He inquires of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up unto the Philistines? Now, I want you to stop here and turn back with me a couple of pages. 2 Samuel chapter 3. 2 Samuel chapter 3. We talked about this a little bit. This is before David was crowned king. Abner is Saul's general. He becomes Saul's son's right-hand man. And really, Abner was kind of the one that was um, doing the ruling. He just kind of propped up Saul's son to save his own position until he turned away from him. Saul's son accused him of being uh, improper with his, um, uh, acting improperly with his concubines, his father's concubines, Saul's concubines. And so Abner and he split, and then he winds up trying to go over to David's side. But um, Joab kills him. I want you to notice what Abner says when he's making a case for David. This is after he and Saul's son have split and parted ways. Notice what Abner says in making his case for David being king. Verse 17. And Abner had communication with the elders of Israel saying, you sought for David in times past to be a king over you. Now then do it. For the Lord has spoken of David's saying, by the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel out of the hand of the Philistines and out of the hand of all their enemies. Folks, I want you to understand something. Verse 18 tells why God picked David to be king. I'm not talking about character issues. I'm talking about purpose. God chose David because he was a man after God's own heart. That's true. But the purpose for making David king was to deliver Israel from all of their enemies, specifically the Philistines. Now, let me ask you a question. How does Abner know that? You'll find that that's not written in Scripture anywhere. How does Abner know that? And remember, Abner is Saul's general. So if Abner knows it, it's got to be pretty common knowledge. This was not some secret of Saul's that he wouldn't dare whisper to anybody for fear of them turning against him. This has to be somewhat common knowledge. So Abner says, now's the time. If you want to make David your king, go ahead, because here's what God says about him. God says, it's in David's hand, out of David's hand, I'll deliver Israel from their enemies and defeat the Philistines. You think David knows that? course he does turn back with me to chapter five david's been anointed king made king he's captured 
Zion. He's made an alliance with the kingdom of Tyre, the king Hiram, who the scripture has said just a few verses before, built him a house, providing the, the, uh, uh, the provisions and the uh, materials and so forth to build a house. The Philistines see this. This stirs them up. Israel's beginning to take a place on the world stage now. We can't let that happen. So they attack or they prepare themselves to attack. So David inquires of the Lord. Folks, it's not enough just to have a position. You need to have the mind of God. Well, bless God, he's made us kings and priests unto himself. That doesn't mean you don't need to find out what he wants you to do. I've seen a lot of people think they can just bull through things with their faith. Folks, faith begins where the will of God is known. You better get God's plan for your life. You better find out what God wants you to do in situations before you just try to bull your way through. So David inquires of the Lord, and the Lord says, Go up, for I will doubtless, undoubtedly, in other words, deliver the Philistines into your hand. Verse 20, And David came to a certain place, and David smote them there and said, The Lord has broken forth upon mine enemies before me as the breach of waters. Therefore he called the name of that place Baal Perazim or something, which means the valley of breaking forth. David understands that the only reason that he is king is because God has made good on his word. But folks, you need to understand something. David has every opportunity to say, praise God, I'm king now. The thing that I've been waiting for for 15 years after God's anointed me, Samuel came to my house and anointed me to be the next king. Now, 15 years later, it's happened. Glory to God, I'm going to rest. You need to realize that on the heels of every victory is another battle. And that's exactly the place the devil wants to catch you is with your, head, your hands folded behind your head and your feet propped up. After Elijah's great victory at the mount uh, over the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel, what's the next thing that happened? Jezebel threatens his life. You'll find over and over and over again after every great victory, there's another battle to fight. Don't ever drop your guard. Don't ever drop your guard. I don't care what blessing comes that you've been believing for for however long. Don't drop your guard. The devil wants to come and knock you down right after you think think everything's going your way. So David is told by the Lord to go forth and I'll deliver the Philistines into your hand. Now I want you to notice that he did not say, David, you're king. I'll take care of everything for you. You just relax. No, God said, go up. There are enemies out there, folks. There are battles to fight. But you're going to fight them effectively when you know that God's on your side and he's told you to go. Now, isn't it interesting that God said of David, you can't build my temple because you're a man of war, yet this man of war asked God when to fight. Folks, there's a difference in being in a fight and being a fighter. As Christians, we need to be ready to fight. That doesn't mean we pick every fight that's available to us or even accept every challenge that's offered. Find out the ones that God wants you to fight. Some battles aren't worth fighting. Now, think about the condition, the position that the church would be in if, if, uh, if the body of Christ followed that principle. Think how much better everybody would get along. Because most of the fighting the church does is with itself, among themselves, with each other. Why? 
because some people just want to fight. Are any of those fights ones that God directs us to fight? No. Even fights over doctrine aren't of the will of God. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, we've got to stand up for truth. I'm pretty sure God's able to handle his own business when it comes to truth. And if he had wanted the denominations in different factions of the body of Christ to fight one another, then why hadn't the issue ever settled? Are you out there? Okay. The Lord said to David, go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. David says, the Lord has broken forth upon mine enemies before me as the breach of waters. Now, the breach of waters, the word breach of waters means waters flowing through it like a, a flood through a dam. Now, I want to read a verse of scripture to you because this one always bugs me. It bugs me the way that people interpret it. It bugs me the way that, and it's really, it's not their fault, I guess. King James is not very helpful. But in Isaiah 59, verse 19, You'll know part of this scripture, I'm sure. It says this. It says, So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. In other words, from the east. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. What does that mean? Well, I've heard people say and teach. Well, that means when the enemy comes in and he's flooding in on every hand, God will raise up a strong rock in the middle of the flood. Let me read this to you from some other translations. The Septuagint says this. So shall they of the West fear the name of the Lord and they that come from the rising of the sun, his glorious name for the wrath of the Lord shall come as a mighty river. It shall come with fury. Who's the flood? The Lord is. Another translation says, he will attack like a flood in a mighty windstorm. Nations in the west and the east will then honor and praise his wonderful name. Another translation says, people from the west to the east will fear the Lord and respect his glory. He will come quickly like a fast flowing river driven by a wind from the Lord. Another one says, the people of the west will fear the name of the Lord. Those in the east will fear his glory. He will come like a rushing stream. The wind of the Lord pushes him. The Jewish Bible says in the West, they will fear the name of Adonai and likewise in the least in the East, his glory, for he will come like a pent up stream impelled by the spirit of Adonai. Folks, are you getting the picture where it says when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Lord will raise up a standard against him. That's what David is saying that God did in delivering him from his enemies. And remember, David's a type of, of Jesus who put every enemy underfoot. There's only one left to be put underfoot, and that's death, physical death. Are you with me? David said, the Lord broke forth like a flood of waters upon my enemy. That's the picture of what God has done to the, to the power of the devil. Now, did Jesus do that for himself? What's he needed for? He's at the right hand of the Father. I'm pretty sure there's not a devil problem in heaven. He's not there. He doesn't go there. He doesn't have access there. He's not welcome. God kicked him out long, long ago. Well, where is he? He's here on the earth. 
So when you feel the devil or see the devil coming forward in your life in circumstances, realize that the power of God is like a flood to destroy your enemies just like he did for David. Verse 21, and there they left their images. The Philistines brought their idols and David, left, and, David and his men burned them. Now let me, let me point something out here and that is why in the world would the Philistines or any other group of people at that point in time think that their idols, their, their graven images, their, their gods would do anything for them against the God of Israel? The answer is very simple. That is Israel has not been in God's favor. So they haven't seen the power of God. They haven't seen the hand of God at work. But part of David's being anointed king and then being made king as a type of Jesus is now that the favor of God is upon Israel, the people of God. And David ushers in a relationship with God for, on the behalf of Israel that has never been known before. He puts the worship of God in its right place. And he puts his house right next to that place where God's going to have his temple. That's your position. Just as Jesus was raised from the dead, so have you been. He has raised us up together and seated us together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Well, is that the end of the enemies? No. Verse 22. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread themselves in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord... Notice David doesn't say, oh, I know how to defeat the Philistines in Rephaim. I'll do the same thing that I did before. Now, David's going to fulfill a type that Moses messed up. Remember the Old Testament says that uh, God, when Moses delivered, the, or God delivered through the hands of Moses, the children of Israel from Egypt, they come to a place where there's no water. The first time they came to a place, God told Moses, take your rod and strike the rock and water will come out. And he did and it did. And it watered the children of Israel and provided enough for the millions of them and their, their cattle and all the other stuff that they had. The next time they come to a place where there's no water, God says to Moses, go speak to the rock and water will come out. But Moses is mad at the people. And so instead of speaking to the rock like he was supposed to, he strikes the rock. Water came out all right, but it cost Moses his ability to go into the promised land. He said, because you struck the rock... You messed up my, my picture of what life-giving water, the, meaning a type of the Holy Spirit, comes by. The first time it comes by the rock being stricken, smitten or stricken. That's a type of Jesus hanging on the cross, being smitten of God and afflicted. The second time the water is supposed to come forward because Jesus has already been to the cross and already paid the price through the spoken word. But Moses messes that up. We still have the benefit of the, of the understanding of the type, what it was supposed to be anyway, because of the record that the Bible gives us. Well, the same thing, the same type is here for David. David was commanded first to go up and he saw the power of God by going out to fight against his enemies. The second time, however, David inquires of the Lord. The Lord said, thou shalt not go up. Don't do it like you did last time. Well, what am I supposed to do then, Lord? But fetch a compass behind them. In other words, encircle around behind them. And come upon them over against the mulberry trees. And let it be when thou hearest the sound of a going in the tops of the mulberry trees. That then 
thou shalt bestir thyself, for then shall the Lord go out before thee to smite the host of the Philistines. Now, the sound of a going is really kind of, kind of difficult for, uh, for most of us. Other translations say a sound of footsteps. One translation says, or many translations say a sound of marching. It's talking about when you hear the sound. God's into sounds. We're not so much, I think, because we don't recognize that he is. But there have been a number of times where sounds have been really important with the things of God, especially the moving of the Holy Ghost. You remember in Acts chapter 2? They were all assembled in the upper room, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and cloven tongues of fire sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Why is God into sounds? God talked about many times in the Old Testament, several times, different times in different ways. He said, I'll cause your enemies to hear a rumor and they'll depart. In this case, God says, when you hear a sound, that will trigger the power of God to deliver you from your enemies or defeat your enemies. David, I mean, uh, what's his name? Uh, Paul said it this way, right into the Galatians. He said in verse chapter 3 and verse 5, he said, He that ministers the Spirit and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the, working, by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? In other words, he's saying, the power of God that works among you, how does that come? Does that come through two physical action like David defeated the, the Philistines the first time? Or does it come by hearing sounds, the hearing of faith? Well, what sound are we looking for? What sound did Jesus make a way for us to hear? The word of God. Folks, there's nothing more important in the life of any believer, whether they know it or not, than the word of God. And that spoken word, the sound of God's word, is that what brings victory? So David does exactly what he tells them to. David did so and as the Lord had commanded him and smote the Philistines from Geba until thou come to Gezer. Now there's one thing I'd like to, to close with this evening and that is this. There's another example here, characteristic or, or principle that I think is important and that is this. Don't think that every battle is won the same way even if it's the same circumstance. Both times the children of, uh, uh, of the, not the children, the Philistines. Both times the Philistines are gathered together against David. We don't know if this was a week apart, probably several years apart. I can't imagine they'd be defeated and turn right, right, on, right around and come back. But we don't know what period of time takes place here. The Bible's real vague as far as the timeline is concerned. We know when David began to be king. We know when he ended his reign. But the timeline as far as what happened in the in the Meantime, in the, the, the time between one event and the other, it's real, real vague to us. So we don't know how long this was. But David had every right, every reason to take a human approach, natural approach, and say, well, I know what I did last time the Philistines came to the same place. So I'll just do that again. As I said, David knows what the Lord has spoken about him. He knows that the reason that God has anointed him and uh, positioned him to be king of Israel is to defeat the enemies of Israel, specifically the Philistines. So he could just take, by faith, 
action, the same action the second time that he took the first time because that's what God's called him to do. I'm glad he didn't because we, uh, we don't know what would have happened. But at the very least, he might have been guilty of messing up God's type again. Well, wouldn't that have been something? Moses messes it up and then David messes it up. I'll never forget the story. It really made an impact on me. I think one reason was because of some things that I was going through at the time. But I heard Dr. Hicks, Roy Hicks, telling the story that uh, of a missionary trip that he took as a much younger man. He was, was probably 20 years before the time that I heard him tell it. And uh, he said he took a missionary missions trip to, um, uh, I think it was the Philippines. It was some tropical island. I think it was somewhere in the Philippines. He said, boy, I've never had such heat and humidity in my life. He was there for two weeks, and after about three or four days of preaching nonstop, you know, four to six hours a day, just take a break for, for meals, but after that, you know, they'd go right back into meetings, morning, noon, and night type things. And so he was preaching five or six hours a day, I guess it was, and he said after three or four days, he said, I started getting sick like I've never been sick before in my life. And he said, well, I know what to do when you get sick. I figured it was just the attack of the devil as every sickness is. So I just claim my healing in the name of Jesus. Another two or three days go by and I'm getting worse. So finally, now it's been six or seven days, almost half the time he was there. He's still got four, three, four, five days left, whatever it is. He finally got to the place where he prayed and said, Lord, I'm not getting any better. What should I do here? And the Lord spoke to him. He said, spoke to him just as clear as could be. He said, put more salt on your food. See, what's happened is the humidity and the, the, the mugginess of the climate has dehydrated him. And he's trying to get healing. And healing is not what he needs. He needs a word from God. Once he started putting more salt on his food, then his body was able to retain water. He stopped being dehydrated, and he said he finished out that ministry trip without any more problems from that moment forward. I wonder how many times we do that. I wonder how many times we go through and we just decide, well, bless God, I'm going to do this. I don't like bless God faith. You know what I mean by that? I don't like this, this bulldog attitude, well, bless God, I'm just going to do it if it hairlips the devil. I don't like that because that puts the attention on you. That puts the attention on you and how strong in faith you are. Well, folks, how strong in faith can you be if God doesn't honor his word? And please remember, faith is not a formula. Faith is a relationship with Jesus. I always remember the, what uh, Lester Summerall said. He was holding a seminar at Ramah. And somebody was talking about the things that he did, uh, things that, that they were doing in their ministry and how they believed God for this and that and the other. And somebody spoke up and he was kind of in distress and he's going through a real hard time in his ministry. And he said to a group of other ministers in the back room, he said, uh, you know, you guys pray for me. I've been believing God for such and such a thing and, and we're just having a, a, just a terrible time. And Lester Summerall just spoke up. Nobody's saying anything to him. He just spoke right up and he said, when my faith's not working, I don't examine my faith. He said, I examine my relationship with God. And that just shut the room down. But he's right. There are things that we're going to be withstood, things that are going to be withheld as much as possible by the enemy 
But there's a difference in just standing strong and standing in faith with close fellowship with God. And another thing to try to make something happen. I think a lot of times people try to make God do what they want and call it faith, and it's not. I don't like to tell, I don't like to the, to hear people talking about. Well, I've had faith failures. I don't believe that. I don't believe faith has ever failed. Now, I've had failures thinking I was in faith, but faith never fails because faith is always based on God's word, and God's word can't fail. So if I've ever failed, it's because I missed it in some way or another because God can't miss it. Now, there have been times where I thought God had put something in my heart and it wasn't my heart at all. must have been my emotions or feelings or something and I've made mistakes, but that's not faith. Even if I thought it was at the time. And I can tell you a couple of times where I thought I was in faith and I can look back after it didn't turn out and I could see all the time my spirit was trying to tell me the right way to go instead. Once the pressure's off, it's easy to see. But I didn't see it while I was in the middle of the fight. Are you with me? Always inquire of the Lord. Always get God's plan on it. I remember that uh, when we were in the middle of some of the fight we had for the building and there were 11 different lawsuits at one time going on. And something came up where where it was just a, a blatant and obvious, well, this wasn't the only time, but there was one situation in particular where one of the subcontractors had uh, been told by the general contractor to make it look like he had done a lot of work that he didn't. So he put a lot of sheetrock up on the wall without anything behind it to support it. Well, obviously that's contrary to the code, and it's it's that's um, just you just don't do that. And uh, so we were fighting on one hand the general contractor. He was had sued us uh, and saying that we owed him for doing a lot of work that wasn't up to snuff, wasn't up to code, and so forth. And so uh, time goes by, and we finally discovered what was going on, what had gone on, and I asked the Lord. I said, Lord, we're in the right here, just like we're in the right in every one of these other lawsuits and situations. But in every other one, the other 11, God specifically witnessed to my heart, you don't file a suit against anybody. But I got to that last one, and I said, okay, Lord, here's $400,000 that they say that we owe them and that we'll have to pay. It's not my money. It's not like this is $400,000 that's going to have to come out of the church account because we don't have it to begin with. So this is your problem. What should I do? That one time, the Lord said, I want you to take them to court. And we did, and we got the money. I was one for 12 on what God told us to do. That doesn't mean we lost all the other 11. We lost... We lost one big one. But we found out through the middle of that that God was the God that's more than enough. That was the hardest pill for me to swallow is know that I was in the right and still had to pay money. I found out, folks, this is the legal system, not the justice system. But God's bigger than even that. You look around nowadays, try to find any of those businesses that that, uh, suit us and even the ones that got money from us, you can't find a one of them. We're going strong. I could tell you some stories about stuff that I heard happen to some of these people. 
one guy died of a brain aneurysm right after the case was over. Several of the companies went out of business shortly thereafter. The general contractor, his life was absolutely destroyed. His body was destroyed with cancer. His wife left him, took half of the business. His business wound up going under. It was just a mess. Now, folks, I don't say that with any sense of pride or or happiness about it. I wouldn't wish that on anybody. But you just can't fight against the things of God and come out ahead in the long run. You just can't do it. I wish God settled up by every Saturday evening. But that's not the way it works. But God does settle up. So I always check with the Lord and see, what do I do? Or how do I do it? I, I'm, my method of operation is if it's something like standing in sickness or whatever the case might be, I will go to the Lord and I'll say, now, Lord, I assume that the thing to do here is just take the word and stand on it in faith and resist this resist this attack. If there's something I'm supposed to do differently, I'm open to it and I'm looking for you to tell me. But otherwise, I'm going to proceed under this understanding. If I am of the wrong understanding, you show me the, the way, the right way. And there have been times where I've had the Lord show me. Many times, probably most of the time, he doesn't say anything, so I know I'm on the right track with what I assume to do. But I'm always looking to see what he says about it. I don't know about you, but I found that what Wigglesworth talked about prayer is the best way that works for me. Somebody asked Wigglesworth one time, said, how much do you pray? And he said, well, he said, I rarely pray about any one thing for more than 30 minutes at a time. He said, but I'll never go without 30 minutes without praying. I'll never go 30 minutes without praying. He had a running conversation with the Lord. That works best for me. I don't have set prayer times. Well, I take that back. I have one set prayer time, and that's Sunday evening at 5 o'clock. Outside of that, I don't have set prayer times. Now, I know some people disagree with that. Some people say, oh, you need to make an appointment with God. Well, my day is an appointment with God. I'm talking to him all the time. That works for me. I don't know what's going to work for you, but whatever it is, find it and do it. Amen? Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, let's all stand. Hallelujah. Let's just lift our hands and thank the Lord for his goodness. Thank him for Jesus, who spoiled principalities and powers and made an open show of them. Thank you, Father, that our enemies have been defeated. Thank you, Lord, that you're building the church. Everything that we ever need is already accomplished and provided for through the work of Jesus. Even as David gathered millions and millions and millions of dollars for the building of the temple, Jesus has provided everything that we need physically, spiritually, mentally, socially, and emotionally that we might do the works that he did while he was here on the earth that we might overcome the enemy while we're here. Thank you, Father, for the power in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.